understand you are a prolific coffee drinker. How many shots of espresso have you had so far today? <laughs> uh, let's see. Today, this will be eight. Yeah. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. And for listeners, it's only 10 a.m., so keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I'm speaking with Mike McFall, co-CEO at Big B Coffee and the author of the book, Grind, a guide to take your business from concept to cash flow. Mike, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Yana. It's great to be here. Now, for listeners who've not yet had the pleasure of visiting Big B Coffee, tell us more about the franchise and your evolving role there over the years. Sure. We've been in business 20, 27 years now, and we're a franchise company, and and so that means we get to work with franchise owners uh, day in and day out. You know, we started with one store in East Lansing, and you know we've been on a quest. Our, our quest was to sell one more cup of coffee uh, today than we did yesterday. So that focus has led to a lot of growth for us, and you know we're really maturing uh, as a company and as a brand. Um, back in the day, I started as a barista, and I pretty much had every position within the company. You know. Over over time, and have have been in in every role. Um, today, my role is is you know quite different than it was at the beginning, and my role today is more about facilitation of the health and dynamic of our team, uh, our relationship with our franchise owners, making sure that we're maintaining our culture, being around for you know historical perspective and so on. Today, I don't have a you know a real grind. I mean. I'm not in it every single day. In fact, I've been on sabbatical since May 15th. So I'm in the closing weeks of a three-month sabbatical for my position at oh, Big wow. B, which has been a pretty wild experience, you know? So, you know, we're, we are maturing as a company. We have a, a, we have a really strong management team in place today that is handling the day-to-day. And, uh, and that means that, uh, you know, I don't have to be involved in as much of, of that as, as I once was. Yeah, that's significant because I don't think you've taken such a long sabbatical before. And this is after 26 years, if I'm correct, at the Mm -hmm. the chain. And you have, I think now, over 300 locations across the Midwestern United States. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, somebody asked me this weekend and, and I couldn't answer exactly. And that's probably the first time in my career I haven't been able to say exactly how many stores we have. <laughs> <laughs> because when I left, it was, I think when I left in May, it was like 303. Uh, and we were opening, you know, about 1.5 a week. Uh, we were on a pace. So I've been gone now for 10 weeks. Um, so I, I would guess it's in the range of 320, you know, 315, 320 right now. But it, it's kind of a weird, weird perspective to not know. <laughs> <laughs> How has your sabbatical been? Have you had a chance to think about things you hadn't had a chance to consider before? You know, not so much, right? I mean, it's it's been primarily focused on getting my second book wrapped up. Uh, I'm really excited about this project. And uh, the book Grind was the first book in a three-book series. And so, you know, I have a commitment to have my first round of, of editing done with my editor by Friday of this week. Uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a bit of a week here for me trying to get that done. Um, but, you know, I've been busy. I, you know, it's not, it's not uh, you know, somehow in my mind I had it sort of chalked up like it was going to be summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was I got four kids too so uh but but you know so there 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 was no summer vacation I've been busy I've been real productive uh been had a lot of different things going on so you know but I'm looking forward to getting back I really am 
Nice. I bet. Well, we're going to focus more on grind today because I think this is a book that stands out for me as having some very practical insights around uh, entrepreneurship, starting your own business. Uh, One of the things that caught my eye from the beginning when I read the description is that 20% of companies fail in the first year, even though 1 million people start a small business annually. And almost 65% close within a decade. And those are pretty grim statistics. And what I liked about your book is that you lay it out very candidly. There's no um, aspirational language that conflates reality with dreams. (laughs) It's very much... This is what it takes. Such a nice way of saying that. <laughs> well, I have heard the one negative I've heard about the book is is really the exact uh, 180 degree uh, way of saying what you just said, which is um, that I am almost encouraging people not mm-hmm. to do it. You know, and and that that was never my intention. Uh, my intention was never to to tell someone that they shouldn't or couldn't. It's always been about just taking a hard look at reality to make sure that you've got what you need around you and supporting you in order to help you be successful. That That's really what the point, the point of it all was. Exactly. And you're not an academic. You're not coming at this from a theoretical perspective. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on why your journey has been so important. You mentioned starting out as a barista and actually occupying every single role there is in that a big the experience. Tell us a little bit more about why that journey informed where you came from and where you are today. Well, I've always um, believed that to be effective in managing a business, you have to be very, very well versed in the details of of that business. And so, you know, having been able to and had the opportunity to be in just about every position, I mean, when I say just about every position, the only thing I haven't done is the actual bookkeeping. I managed the finances for 20 years, but I never actually did the, you know, the data entry. So that's the only thing I haven't done. So when I say just about everything, that's what I mean. But for me, I really believe in the fact that in order to effectively manage a business, you need to understand it sort of at the most granular level. And we, in fact, had a clause in our franchise agreement uh, that my group's trying to get me to agree to pull out right now, which I'm going to agree to because I have to with them. You know, I mean, I need to support them in it. But uh, that your first year of business, we wanted you to have an apron on and be on the floor working one of our three determined positions six hours every day. And then you had two to three hours a day to handle the administration. And we felt like having that perspective on the business for a franchise owner was critical. And I, and I still believe it was one of the things that was able to get us to the degree of success and development that we've been able to get to at this point. And I think this relates to what you talk about when it comes to the idea of due diligence. So due diligence isn't just spreadsheet numbers and abstract concepts. This is very much your sense that having hands-on experience helps you understand what it takes, people that work there. So tell us a little bit more about what it means to complete due diligence and how that relates to self-awareness as you describe it. Well, this concept came to me because I did a whole bunch of work, like months and months worth of work. And and Tasha Yurik is an author who wrote the book Insight. And so it dawned on me that we do all kinds of due diligence as entrepreneurs around the opening of a business, around the launch of a new business, 
you know, learning about competition and the market and, you know, uh, consumer preferences and, you know, whatever it might be, we're, we're studying, uh, all kinds of different, but we, we leave out, in my opinion, the most important ingredient to the success of the business, which is doing due diligence on yourself, understanding your strengths, understanding your weaknesses, so that you can leverage your strengths and then support yourself in the areas that you need support and your weaknesses. And you can do that through, you know, having a partner that compliments you. You can do that through, you know, strategic hires, hiring the right people to handle certain things for you. But the fact of the matter is nobody does that. I guess everybody assumes in a way that they're just going to be naturally good at being an entrepreneur. Well, no one has the full toolbox on being a successful entrepreneur. I don't care who you are, right? Everyone has weaknesses. Everybody has areas that they're not going to be that strong. And so that's really what chapter one of the book is about is let's evaluate you. People underestimate how important you as the as the entrepreneur are to the success of the business you don't just you don't just put a product out there and it sells itself right and that's that's mm-hmm. the other major premise of the book is you better be ready to promote you better be ready to sell or you're going to struggle so yeah uh, but i did do a um i did a a 24 question quiz uh called the grind score oh yes i completed this one <laughs> and did you <laughs> how'd you do <laughs> I think I only got seven, so I'm probably not a strong candidate, but that's okay. I'm happy to cheer on from the sidelines anybody who's got the uh, tenacity to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> well, you know, and again, the point of the, the feedback from that was not to say that a nine is going to be better than a seven, but, but more about if you're a nine or if you're an eight, what are the things, what are the, what are the areas that didn't make you a 10? And then really evaluating those and how that might get in your way in terms of being successful. Yeah. Well, for me, I can answer that very honestly. It's the 24-7 aspect. So one of the things you mentioned in your book is there's not going to be a vacation or a holiday period for many entrepreneurs. They might get a a moment away and surely your sabbatical is something unique in, in terms of all that you've done in the last more than 25 years, taking time away to devote to a book. I want to step back to what you're talking about with self-awareness, because I think what you said around entrepreneurship and people believing that it just takes confidence or that they have what it takes, whatever that is, is a barrier. And the insidious aspect of ego is that it makes us confident that we are self-aware when perhaps we have a lot to learn. So can you talk a little bit about a time maybe where you became more self-aware after feeling you know, maybe I didn't judge that as well as I thought that situation. Well, I think one of the most powerful moments in reading Tasha Urich's book, Insight, she makes the claim, and this is a woman who, you know, is world renowned for her, for her study and in, in self-awareness. And uh, she said, if you believe you're self-aware, you're not. and that like took my (laughs) yeah it just like completely warped my entire world you know that one line and I think you know what it comes down to is you know self-awareness 101 is being able to run this filter where when something happens in the world that you have this filter that allows you to not react out of emotion or, or, you know, take a step back and think about, okay, what's a more appropriate response. And, and, Mm. you know, 
most people have that ability, I would say, right? Not all, but most. Mm -hmm. But then what really got me going with Tasha's work was she then makes the claim that self-awareness 2.0 is understanding your impact on others and understanding how when you engage with somebody, the impact you're having, and so that you can begin to have the impact that you want to have right with somebody and to me that was a that was a huge sort of quantum leap forward in in relation to my understanding of of self-awareness and it's really cool to to think about that you can sit and with a bunch of work because you don't know as a as a person you don't know the impact you're having and and you have different impact on different people right so you might have sure. a certain type of impact on one person and something very different kind of impact on another and so beginning to have the conversations with the people in your life that are super important to you and so on about the impact that you have. And then being able to work with that is like, I mean, that just really powerful stuff. Are there any conversations that stand out in your memory as aha moments where you realized, oops, I don't think I had the impact on that person that I was hoping for? Yeah, I think um, there was an engagement I had probably about a decade ago uh, where basically what came through was that I oftentimes come uh, into a room or I'm presenting myself in a certain way within a group or with, with people as quite arrogant, right? And that that's the vibe mm. that people are getting from me and that I am sort of bored with their take, not that interested in their take. I kind of have it all figured out. Right. And, and then I'm, I'm arrogant enough to think that I have it all figured out. And so, and that landed, I mean, that's not the easiest thing in the world to hear. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it took me a bit on that one. And, you know, I had some really strong people around me, one of which was my business partner, uh, who were able to begin to point out the specific moments and behaviors when it was occurring so that in the moment mm -hmm. I could evaluate it. And, you know, we got through it as a group, you know, they helped me through it. And a lot of it had to do with, a lack of patience. And then the other, the other piece of that was boredom. And so I just, I'm through it, right? I'm, I need to move on. I'm impatient. I'm bored with what's happening here right now. We need to get going, right? And, and how, that, how that manifested with people was I was just, I was arrogant. I, was, I came across as, as very condescending and arrogant, right? And so anyway, um, that was a moment that I was able to get some pretty significant feedback uh, from people, a fair amount of awareness around it. I'm, I still struggle with it today, um, I do. And you know, I still have moments when people point it out to me and so on. So if I, if I come across as arrogant in the podcast, will you tell me? Absolutely. So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. You mentioned something that you still struggle with every day. And I think this is often the quality of our strengths is it's almost like they're turned up too loud or they're over, they become overbearing and then they become weaknesses. So how do you come back and practice what you gained insight from? Or do you have any hints or advice that you could recommend to our audience as far as skills? Absolutely. To me, it's about bringing those around you into the conversation about what you're working on. And it's really difficult to do it on your own. In fact, I might even say it's it's impossible to do it on your own because these are things that are unconscious, right? That mm -hmm. You're not aware that it's occurring. And so you need the people around you to bring that to you when it occurs. And so having the conversation with people about 
this is what's going on for me. This is what I'm working on. Could you please point out to me when I start to appear bored or when I start to appear when you know when when you're feeling like I'm I'm coming across as arrogant in a room or whatever? Can you please can you please bring that uh, to me at that moment? And so to me, it's uh, the best step forward is bringing those around you into that conversation and having them help you. And having people who are willing to open up and tell you and they're not too scared or intimidated to tell you. And that must be tricky if you're in a position of leadership. That's real tricky, but that's just, you know, it's just authenticity. And one of the greatest ways you can build a relationship with somebody, people get an inverse structure around how to build a relationship. People think that if I just help you, if I support you, if I do things for you, then that's going to, we're going to build a relationship, the two of us. But one of the more powerful ways to build a relationship is to ask someone for help mm-hmm. and bring them into your world in a genuine way. So by asking somebody to look out for certain behaviors or ask somebody to uh, bring you uh, information or just you know, simply ask them for a favor, that is a really powerful way to build a relationship too. And that helps people see their impact, which is incredibly powerful to I'd say most people, they want to see that they make a difference. Absolutely. And so like you said, if you ask people for help, it gives them a perfect opportunity to bring their strengths to the situation. And given the background and, and then, you know, that shouldn't, like if I sit down with somebody and I ask them for that level of help, I hope that takes any intimidation away, right? Or I, I would think it would take a Good lot point. of it away is, is I'm sitting down and asking you for help, right? Yeah, you're not trying to hold your authority or position over them. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to pivot for a moment because obviously being a business owner, being an entrepreneur, customer relationships are everything. And being consistently committed to your business and its customers is what will yield the ultimate success. So tell me a little bit about how your attitude has evolved towards customer relations and how this shows up in Grind in your book. And you can even hint at your your next book if you want. We'd love a teaser too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a big part of, of Grind. Uh, it's I, th- I think it's the third chapter. The whole third chapter is dedicated to this. And and it's called it's called your first crush is the concept. And you know, my point is that if you as the entrepreneur, the manager of the business, you need to engage the customer who gives you the opportunity in the same way, in the same sort of uh, intensity level as you did your first crush in elementary school, right? <laughs> and and, and my, my, <laughs> right, my point is like that when you had that first crush, right? And that, that person walked in the room, I mean, you were like fixated. Every glance, every word, every, you know, whatever that person was doing was just, you know, supremely powerful to you. And that's the level of attention and detail that we need to be paying to our customers at startup for sure. Because, you know, sure, once the business is going and operating and you you have revenue and you're generating cash flow and so on, the, the intensity level of that can diminish. But at the beginning you're still figuring out what the heck the customer wants from you. You're not even sure what you're selling them. And, and, and so paying attention at just this incredibly intense way where you see what, what they like, what they don't like. I'll, I'll just give you an example. Early on in our business, we were an Italian-style espresso shop. 
right? Mm-hmm. Espresso bar. And so the left menu board was the cappuccino, the latte, the macchiato, the campana, you know, the, the very traditional Italian drinks. And then the next board over was flavored lattes, right? So, you know, the, the mocha mocha, the caramel marvel, the nutty butter, the, the flavored lattes, the hazelnut, the vanilla, and so on. Well, we realized pretty darn quickly that everybody's buying the flavored lattes. And so one of the things that we did quickly in our business, and I think it was one of the decisions that helped propel us, was we kind of scrapped the whole concept of even trying to be a, you know, Italian affected Italian espresso bar. And we stopped worrying about macchiatos and campanas. And we said, we're just going to sell what we now, what we lovingly refer to as sweet bomb lattes, right? So the latte with the flavoring and the whipped cream. <laughs> nice. And it was being sort of laserly focused in on the consumer behavior and how they were interacting with our business. So many people that open coffee shops just missed that. And they stayed stuck on trying to be this like, you know, being something that the consumer didn't care about. The consumer didn't care if you were, if you made the perfect, you know, macchiato. What they wanted is they wanted the sweet bomb latte, right? They wanted the, the caramel latte with extra whipped cream. And, and so that's an example. And so that incredible attention at the beginning to what the consumer wants from you, and the only way to get that is to be laser focused on them and asking them questions and engaging them as intimately as you possibly can. And do you think that pivot came at the right time for you too? Yeah, and it's such an it's such an important point because like you don't know as in a startup, and see we're talking about startup here. In a startup, you don't know why they're coming to you yet. And and that's a huge I mean my uh, I teach here at the university and I have a co-teacher and he and I talk about that all the time is like when you present your product to the market, you better pay attention because they're going to interact with that product in a very most likely in a very different way than you think they are. And if you are so stuck on your original idea that you can't, you can't ideate and create the product that they want, you're done. It's over. Mm-hmm. And that comes back to what you're saying about ego. Because if you're so attached to your original idea and that you're convinced that this is a successful idea, you won't be curious enough to pick up on those clues and see what are the customers doing? What are they saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the Mark Zuckerberg example is, you know, he realized very early on in the development of Facebook that, you know, it was supposed to just be a directory. I don't know if you've heard this story, right? But it was just supposed to be a directory. Yeah, yeah. And then he noticed that people were changing up the photographs uh, on the directory on a very regular basis. And then he quickly realized that people wanted to share their photographs. They wanted to share their stories. And that's when Facebook went from being a directory to being what it is today. Right. And so, you know, had he not caught that moment and and realized how the pace at which people were changing pictures, he would have missed the opportunity to turn this simple directory, which it was into Facebook and what Facebook became. Nice. Yeah. That's a great example. And I'm wondering too, do you feel that the qualities that would make somebody successful at a startup where they can respond and react to customer feedback are fundamentally different than those qualities that would make somebody successful at opening a franchise of well-established menu items and and culture? How does that differentiate? Well, that's a good question. I think I would sort of reframe it a little bit. Um, I think Mm -hmm. do the qualities that make you successful as an entrepreneur hinder your ability to become a successful manager of a business. 
because they're very different roles. Mm-hmm. And and I think a franchise owner coming into a successful franchise kind of starts at that manager role, not necessarily as a, a true blue entrepreneur who's creating value in the marketplace by bringing new products to the to the marketplace right so but yes i mean that's the whole premise of book two is that transition from bootstrapping entrepreneur where you are responsible for everything every minute of every day answering a billion questions engaged in every decision and then that arc from that all the way to where i am today 26 years later which is a little a little slow on the draw, but 26 years later where basically the premise of the book is from bootstrapping to sustainability. And sustainability to me is, is me as the entrepreneur, I'm irrelevant to the business. And I could, I could go away tomorrow and the business would continue to thrive. And so book two is that arc, right? So, and, and it's an arc that most people can't make. Um, it's why so, so few are able to take a business from startup, from uh, concept, and take it all the way through to uh, sustainability. Most people sell out, and I think most people sell out because they don't believe that they can take the business across that whole arc. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're not excited by the prospect of, of taking it to sustainability. Is that possible? True. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great point because, you know, entrepreneurs are oftentimes, you know, I think ADHD is sort of a, <laughs> a, a common thread in the entrepreneurs that I know. And, and so, you know, to be able to go from bootstrapping entrepreneur where ADHD is like a, a sought quality, <laughs> right, uh, to in my role today, like ADHD just doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, we're, we're constantly mitigating that from my partner and I. Yeah. Well, thinking about what you said about the manager role, One of the things that comes up in your book, as well as your other interviews that I've listened to, is this phrase we hear people throw away, like, people are so hard to work with, or it's really hard to get good help. And you talk a lot about the importance of good management, and that people are mostly great, actually, and most people have strengths you can work with, but it's the manager that's the key to making those teams work together. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, I, I mean, it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, and the reason I'm passionate about it is, you know, if you ask seasoned business managers what their biggest struggle in business is, 99 out of 100 times, they're going to say people, you know, finding good people. My premise is you don't find good people. That's such a, such a, like a, just a, a misnomer, finding good people. I think everyone is a good person. And what we as managers need to do is we need to create environments that allow people to thrive within and then support them in doing so. And so that's the big, that's the big switch in mentality is you're not out there looking for a superstar employee who's going to come in and help you run your business. What you need to do as a manager is create a place that people can come into and are supported. It's a nurturing environment where they can grow, where they can develop into the type of employee that they want to be and that you want them to be. And so it starts with management first in terms of building that environment. It doesn't start with finding the right employee. And so that's the, that's the big switch, right? Mm-hmm. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I'd love to hear if you have any stories about maybe an employee who initially was thought to be less than motivated or not a great fit or an on, a franchise owner. Uh, I think you've talked a little bit about 
uh, somebody who bought a franchise for their daughter and you really didn't think that that would work out. Tell me a little bit about that and understanding what's going to work and maybe taking a chance. Well, I think, you know, one of the greatest compliments that I hear and I used to love, I don't get to be involved in it at this uh, at this stage so much anymore, but so many people work for us and come into our world as shy, lacking confidence, but then we expect them and through our training programs and supporting them, we expect them to engage mm-hmm. and taking somebody and watching them sort of grow and blossom from from a shy person lacking confidence to this just incredibly confident you know uh, beautiful person who when when a customer walks in they're just like bah! and they they just like you know <laughs> get engage them in the in and it's you know to see that is a really really great and then we get feedback all the time that it changes people's lives it changes our employees lives to go from and, and you know when you think about who we get to interact with when we're a barista in a coffee shop. I mean, I used to interact, I didn't know it at the time, but I used to interact with Luann Simon, who was the president of Michigan State University. Wow. She wasn't the president at that time. She came in every single day. She got an iced tea with an extra slice of lime, uh, She would or a lemon, sorry. And, and she would stand there and she would talk to me for three to five minutes. She was really cool, you know? And then she'd go over, and then I don't, I don't know when it was, but... Uh, when she got appointed to be president, it was a front page article in the paper. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, <laughs> are you serious? Like that's her. So like those, like as a barista, that gives you confidence, right? Like you're talking to somebody, you're having fun with them. And then you find out it's a, a, a professor at the university or an orthopedic surgeon or, you know, a, a star athlete or whatever. And, and, and like, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, like, People are just people, you know, like they're fun. And we, and, and so watching that transition with our baristas is a really fulfilling part of it. And most of them start out timid, mm-hmm. but then it's our responsibility to help them sort of unfold. And do you think that's part of what drove you to the coffee business and attracted you that opportunity to have much more regular interactions with customers versus a restaurant, which maybe people don't go to every day? Well, I loved it, you know, and, and so, yeah. you know, it was just so much fun to, to be in the stores in the morning. And, and so I think so. I, I, you know, I never really understood the concept of hospitality. Danny Meyer wrote a book called Setting the Table, and it's all about hospitality sort of as a lifestyle almost, you know, and he did uh, Shake Shack. He did a bunch of really high-end restaurants in Manhattan. The guy's just, the guy's a legend, right? Danny Meyer. And so when I read his book, I realized that like hospitality, I love it. I love treating somebody in a way that makes them feel good about themselves, their day, what's going on for them. Like, yeah, so I've, I've thrived in that environment. And it was, to me, it was something that uh, I didn't know about myself until I got into it and started doing it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the success of Big B during COVID speaks a lot to the hospitality of the culture there. And I think one of the things I'd love to have your perspective on is how do you think hospitality will evolve with a customer base that's increasingly looking to buy online or virtually? How can that adapt? Because I I agree with you. I think people love the hospitality experience. I think it changes their lives. And I, I genuinely think it is a way of life, actually, even if 
your job title isn't hospitality per se. I think it can fit into almost everybody's life. I'd love to hear more what you think about that. Yeah, that's a that's a great question or great conversation starter there because I worry about how the world is going to look when these kinds of interactions, you know, may have gone by the wayside. And I actually don't think they will. And maybe this is just my own bias for my own business and my own industry. But I think that people are, they need interaction. You know, you you can't sit in your house on Zoom calls, you know, 24-7. You just can't, you know. And, And so to get out into the world and to talk to people and, you know, just engage, I think our industry is set up nicely mm-hmm. for that, right? Just to go out and grab a cup of coffee, meet somebody at a, for a cup of coffee and have a meeting face-to-face or whatever it might be. So the hospitality side of it, to me, it's really about being, oh, what's the word I want? About being a, a warm, sort of genuine, caring person, you know? And, and, and I think that those that are great at, you know, the restaurant business or just, you know, generally in, in hospitality, that's how they feel about it. It's like having somebody into your house. You know, if somebody comes to for dinner at your house, you, how do you want to treat them? And and that's what they want to do with their businesses and the great ones. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing what they can pull off. And it feels good, right? I think that's what's so cool about it is that it's not the aspect of the job that feels like a job. It feels fun. It feels engaging. It feels like it fires you up. Yeah, I, I love, I just heard a story this weekend and we, I hear these, we hear these all the time in our business. This couple, a friend of mine's niece went on their first date at Big B and they're married now. <laughs> nice. Right? So, That's amazing. Like, yeah. We have, we have so many of those. A lot of people meet in line or, you know, they study at Big B and they're there, you know, on a regular basis with somebody else and they finally start talking and then they start dating and then they get married and have kids and, you know, and so like that is such a, a beautiful part of, of our little world. Oh, that's amazing. And what's next for you when you're thinking about your next book? Are you able to tease out a little bit, a few details maybe? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think the book will come out, I hope, this spring <laughs> and uh, and this coming spring. So um, we're in the midst of editing. But what's next for me is to fully make this transition at Bigby, uh, which is uh, that the leadership team is, is built uh, and functioning. And then my quest coming back into the company in August is going to be to set up a formal board of directors that will interact with the management team. Mm. So the management team is running the business day to day, reporting to the board of directors. Today, the board of directors is my business partner and I, right? So we each own 50% and of the company. And so therefore, we ultimately make all the decisions together, the two of us. But what we want is, is we, want, we want to transition from that mentality to a mentality of the management team interacting with a sophisticated, real board of directors. And then at some point, relatively quickly, like next three to five years, my partner and I do become somewhat irrelevant then. That's the ideal, right? And so we get to still be involved in the things that we want to be involved in. We get to take on projects. Uh, we get to assist however the board and or management team wants us to assist. And so that's a big part of what's next for me professionally at Bigby is helping make that transition. My book is my third book. So the second book is written in the editing process. The final book in the series is a book called Grace. So the first one was Grind. The second book is Grow. The third book is Grace, and Grace is going to be a, basically a statement to the world that, you know, 
now that we have these, if, if you've been able to transition to a sustainable enterprise, now what? And it's the now what that I think is really an important question that we, we all need to be asking ourselves. And, and I think that private enterprise and those that manage private enterprise, you know, I believe it's the most powerful force on the planet. And I think we can transition the traditional mindset that private enterprise is negative and that we can transition private enterprise to a really positive force, the most positive, powerful force on the planet for change to help improve the human condition. And I think that that's what book three is going to be. And I, I, I don't I've got a rough outline on that one. That's all, but but uh, that that's the project. So that's that's my next five years. Is is that right there? And and then raising my kids. I got a five year old, and a two year old. <laughs> I got a sixteen year old, a fifteen year old, a five year old, two year old. So <laughs> my next five years is to get you know move them in in a healthy direction. Lots to occupy your time and uh, energy. Sounds like a good mix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. I love your down-to-earth ideas and based in experience. It's all based in real experience, and that's so refreshing. Um, and at the same time, the fact that you teach is wonderful. And are you? Do you have plans to keep teaching? Oh yeah, I I love the teaching, yeah. and and I want to stay with that for for a long time. Um, it's the most inspiring thing that I do uh, when I go into the classroom. Um, I leave, and I'm just I'm really inspired by the students and and I leave with a strong dose of confidence and sort of faith in the future you know because they're incredible mm-hmm. I mean uh, these students are incredible and so you know I, I I love teaching and as long as I co-teach with another guy and as long as he'll keep having me then I'm gonna keep I'd love to keep doing it oh that's amazing is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to mention or add on and that was great I don't have anything the only thing that I typically will get into in a grind interview that we didn't is the importance of selling, mm. but that almost seems trite in this conversation. Like this conversation seemed to be sort of beyond that, right? Like talking about people and talking about the importance of self-awareness and so on. So I, I don't think we need to go back on that. Okay. Yeah. I do think sometimes people misunderstand the idea of sales because I think it actually goes back to hospitality. I think if more people use the word hospitality instead of sales, they might go further with their developing their own skills. Because I know for me growing up, I had a lot of negative perceptions about sales. And it was only when I started thinking about it differently, like you're serving somebody, you're getting to know somebody, you're engaging with somebody. And I stopped thinking about it as I'm trying to get money out of somebody. I'm trying to sell. Right. And so I, I actually really thought what you said about hospitality is very practical and you're not using the word sales, but that is fundamental to good sales skills, I think. Absolutely. When you're selling, in my opinion, what you're doing is you're bringing value. The product you're offering is bringing value. And if somebody doesn't see that value, fine, right? But um, you're bringing value to them. They're paying for a service that they want, right? And you're solving a problem for them in the world that, that they need solved. <laughs> so, you know, to me, that's hospitality, right? And then the other thing about sales that I think people don't realize is the importance of just truly building a relationship with somebody. And then you're, again, you're, like you said, you're not selling to them, right? You're just, you're understanding them. And then if it's not a fit for them, if your product's not a fit for them, then we just, 
we shake hands, we move on and there's no, you know, and so like I, I was the primary sales, uh, salesman in our organization for 20 years selling franchises. Right. And that was my, my primary role. And I wasn't really selling. I was qualifying. I was making sure it was a good fit for them because I didn't want to get people involved that, that it wouldn't work for, you know, and, and I didn't want to be 10 years down the road having it be a miserable mess, <laughs> you know, and so it was all about qualifying people and making sure it was a good fit and when it was a good fit and they were interested in moving forward, then we would, we would do a deal. Now, that's one of the things I love about your style overall, this theme of saving people time, you know, tell them the truth, tell people the truth about what it takes, whether it's being into sales, whether it's being a good manager, whether it's having that really intense schedule. It's refreshing because there's a real cult of entrepreneurship and business culture. Um, and, and that's fine. I mean, it's very glamorous on the surface, but I think what you convey so eloquently and succinctly is the reality is it takes very specific skills and tenacity and stick to it. You know, it's, it's uh, fantastic. Well, and, and, you know, we didn't talk about it, but I, like it's a mantra of mine that if you aren't committed to making this your your full-time almost obsession for three to five to seven years don't get started just don't get started i mean we were 10 years in before we made any money any kind of a living and 10 years is a long time you know it's been nice for 15 and 16 years now that we have been making a living at it right but boy it was 10 years of just sweating it and people underestimate how long it takes to build something and they expect results in year one that's the when somebody asks me when a new franchisee a prospective franchisee asks me how much money they're going to make in year one it's like big red flag like i'm out because they're thinking about it from the wrong perspective, you know, like you aren't going to be cash flowing in year one. Like you're going to be funding this thing. You're going to be building it for, for, you know, the first two to three years. Right. And then it'll start to get traction. And then years five through 10, you'll start to see some return on that. But boy, that, that quick turn, that quick fix, that quick, men, you know, uh, return on investment mentality is just, oh, to me, uh. it makes, it makes it tough. That's a good red flag, though, because you can instantly, you know, pull people into reality and say, hey, that's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. I mean, it could. Yeah. But we're, we're not we're not planning on it. Yeah. It would be the exception rather right. than the rule. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on dealing with competitors? Do you have in the book? I think you talk a little bit about just focusing on what your strengths are. And the rest will follow and, and don't get too caught up in the game of trying to beat your competitors at what they're good at. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's counter to the, the standard thinking around entrepreneurship and business management. I don't really care what Starbucks is doing. I don't, I don't really care what Dunkin' Donuts is doing so much or, or Tim Hortons. I mean, you pay attention at a cursory level, right? But, you know, to me, it's really about, and we talked about it, it's about listening to your customers. And, and what do you, what are your customers wanting from you? What are they buying from you? What What is their feedback? To me, the customer's feedback is really the only thing that you should be hyper-focused on. And so, you know, people get so wrapped up in paying attention to what everybody else is doing. And, well, you know, it was interesting. I, uh, on my social media, I had a uh, post where I, 
talked about, I wear a lobster butter hat, which is a company here in Ann Arbor called Ruse Roast. They do a lobster butter coffee. So I was wearing a lobster butter hat and, and I was in a store and they're like, aren't you the CEO of Bigby? And I'm like, I'm like, well, yeah. What are you doing wearing a Ruse Roast hat? Aren't they your competition? I'm like, well, yeah, they're my competition, but they're awesome. <laughs> right? Like they're amazing people. They have an amazing company. Their product's incredible. Like why wouldn't I support them? Right? I love those guys. I love what they're doing. So I videoed that, right? And then I put that up and that I think to date, I think that's my highest traction I've ever gotten on a post was sort of this like loving perspective on my competition, you know, and, mm -hmm. and being really okay and cool with the fact that, that I'm saying that these guys are amazing, which they are, right? Yeah. Now, if I didn't think they were amazing, I wouldn't say it, right? But I talk all the time about how Starbucks is an unbelievable company and, and, and how powerful they are and what amazing things they've done uh, out in, in the world. Uh, you know, and Starbucks is incredible, you know? Now, is it, do I like competing with them? No, because they're really good at what they do, <laughs> but, but they're an incredible company, right? And, and like, if we can't acknowledge that they're an incredible company, like that's, that's silly, right? Like they're, they're amazing. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to following Bigby and uh, checking out your next book. I find your ideas, like I said, very accessible. Um, I hope you'll be on more podcasts because I did a search and I was trying to listen to everything that you've been on. And you might feel like you're repeating yourself a little bit, but I found it really compelling. Just listening to some of the times the way you were reframing ideas or applying it to different situations even as somebody who is not an entrepreneur, you know, I have the podcast, but I work in a very large company during the Monday to Friday, nine to five. So many of the concepts you talk about to me still resonate as important to good relationships in the workplace and a strong employee engagement, great employee culture. Well, thank you. And I hope when the next book comes out, I think it'll be an interesting conversation because it goes more into that type of thing, which which I'm actually more passionate about than I am entrepreneurialism because it, it's about companies and organizations supporting people, supporting people as human beings, supporting, nurturing them in developing a life that, that they love and that we as leaders of organizations have an obligation to do that. And that we need to be doing it. And I and I love that conversation. That's a that's a beautiful conversation to be having. That's awesome. Well, I hope everyone checks out Mike's book. I'm gonna promote that in the show notes as well. And you can actually take the grind test for yourself and get your own grind score and figure out how uh, you stack up in the entrepreneurial qualities. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure having you. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. If you love access ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas. Access Ideas.